0: Hey folks and welcome to Brown and Out. Today we're talking to Jake Small. Um, How are you doing today, Jake?
1: Hey, how's it going, Reggie? I'm doing well. Um, I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much for this opportunity and I'm excited to uh, be the next interviewee.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It almost sounds like a game show, like uh, the next interviewee on Price is Right or something, (laughs) but um, that's good. I'll take it. And... Right off the bat, I am curious, um, because we've spoken a bit, we did a bit of a pre-interview, got some facts on you, and so you're not originally from Vermont, in fact, you're from New York City, so I'm curious what it was like growing up there.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, I I mean, so now that I don't live in New York, um, I just say New York City broadly, but anyone you know from New York City claims their borough much, much, much more strongly than uh, the entire city. And so I'm from Queens, and so I'll say that now. I'm from Southside Jamaica Queens, more specifically St. Albans. And so I don't know if you have a lot of Queens listeners, but I'm sure folks who've been in the area will know exactly where that is, right off of Linden and Linden and Farmers. Um, but growing up in New York City uh, felt normal, felt average, right? Like it, it never really feels like. Um, anything special or spectacular until you leave. Um, so I spent my first 16 or 17 years living in New York City all throughout school. Um, I grew up in a family, huge family, mom and dad, and then four older siblings, and so a household of seven. Um, growing up in New York City was fun, exciting, a 40-minute train ride to literally anywhere, whether I wanted to be in Manhattan or uh, in Brooklyn or out on Long Island. It just felt like I had a lot of access to, to get around and do stuff. I named that because it's so different from how I've spent the last couple of years um, since undergrad and now grad school living in, well, just say like much smaller cities and towns.
0: <laughs> so um, you went to college outside of New York, is that right?
1: So I went to college outside of New York City. Um, I was still in upstate New York the uh, State University of New York College at Oswego, graduated in 2019. um, And it felt nothing like the New York I experienced for 17 years before I started college. And so for me, it felt like I was out of New York, but it was still, you know, I saw New York state license plates and, you know, all of the comforts of being an in-state student were still there, but uh, definitely didn't go to school in New York City,
0: that's for sure. Right, the culture must have been a bit different. Uh, Can you speak to that a bit?
1: Yeah, so I mean, um, New York City and Queens, in specific, like specifically, um, is just such a huge cultural hub, right? There are something like over 200 languages spoken in the single borough of Queens alone. Um, Hundreds of cultures are represented uh, in the different restaurants, the food that's available. Uh, the faces that you'll see as you walk down a street, um, just the the music that you'll hear coming out of various apartment buildings, moving from New York city to say Oswego or now Burlington uh, in Vermont. Um, just a lot more white folks, uh, a lot more um, expectations to assimilate in some ways into white culture. Um, I mean, it, 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 Huge, huge cultural shift, and I didn't realize how magnificent my New York City experience was until I no longer had it until I was one of the few people that I saw with brown skin when I went to the grocery store or when I went to the park or down to the pier or uh to the waterfront so I would say that's been the biggest cultural shift um just in terms of like racial and ethnic uh affirmation just in the representation in the, in the different cities and towns.
0: So currently, uh, as you just said, you're living in Burlington, um, and you are a graduate student, is that right, at UVM?
1: Yeah, so I'm a second-year graduate student.
0: And tell us about your um, concentration, as it were, Um, yeah, and how how you you got there.
1: Yeah, for sure. So uh, I guess it really, it goes back well before me. I'm someone who Um, really believes in intergenerational wisdom I recognize that I'm here where I am today because of my mother and my father and their sacrifices and their parents and their sacrifices dating back before I can even um, see on my family tree and so I come from a family of of educators Um, I come from a family of folks who are well educated and that's a huge privilege that I I have to name at the beginning of like my educational journey But for me specifically, back in middle school, I thought I wanted to be a middle school teacher. In high school, I thought I wanted to teach high school. I got to college and realized, I don't think that I want to be a teacher, but I love education. Uh, And so I ended up studying communication, um, also studied Spanish. I had a couple of minors in like design and expressive arts therapy. It was really a time to explore. Um, That all got me to my graduate program now, where I'm studying in the Masters of Education Higher Education and Student Affairs Administration Program. Long title, which really just means I'm studying about colleges, um, how they work, how they operate, who has access, who doesn't, um, and how we can hopefully expand that access for, for more folks.
0: I love that. And I love that you're inspired by your family um, to pursue your career. And that's obviously something that drives you.
1: But yeah, I, I think a lot about my mentors and my inspiration being being folks in my life who have demonstrated how education can be truly magnificent and life-changing.
0: Right on. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I feel like, uh, so do you think that uh, teaching is in your future um, or something kind of parallel to that?
1: Yeah, I think that whenever you get into like, quote unquote more advanced like uh education on any topic whether it's biomedical engineering or sociology at like the graduate or doctoral level people get pretty pretentious about the words that they that they use it's like it's not this it's that um I don't know if I'll be a teacher in the formal sense I definitely hope to be teaching though um I can't see myself being uh you know Professor Small, who stands at the front of a room and calls out a roll call of a class of 25 students, but I can see myself being an educator. um, And I can see myself using education in whatever industry I decide to work in. Um, For example, my mom, she is an educator. She's a teacher in many ways, but she works in medicine. Uh, She is an asthma educator, and she works with patients of asthma, their parents, their guardians, their their caregivers, um, on best practices around treatment and treatment care. She's an educator in my mind, but she's not necessarily a teacher. And I could see myself modeling how I engage with education after my mom.
0: Right on. Okay. Well, doctor, apparently the Latin root means to teach. This is something that I saw on a TV show recently. So I'm like, (laughs) I'm regurgitating, but that's, you know, that's education, isn't it? It's, it's a lot of repeating, um, important things that you heard from other people um okay i i know that you are an artist um of many practices (laughs) um if you want to go into some of that i would love to hear more about your art and your different modes of expression
1: yeah yeah for sure so i i I've only recently started calling myself an artist, right? Because I, for some reason, I had this very fixed perception in my head that an artist is someone who works in one or two different uh, modalities, whether that's singing and dancing or, or painting and drawing, um, and they get really good at it. And that's what their job is. And that's what their career is. And it has to have something to do with like uh reputation or, or uh, it has to be a place where you make money. Um, but that's not true anyone can be an artist and in many ways a lot of us are artists and so i'm i'm trying to hold on to that identity as something that i can can claim authentically um i've been doing various types of art since as long as i can remember um right now i spend my artistic time either singing writing songs playing the ukulele or the piano when i can get a chance to Um, i also spend my time painting and drawing, I like to use acrylic paints, and I had this fancy set of pencils that um, I used when I was in an undergrad. I had an art minor, uh, and so I pull those out and dust them off every now and then. But When I think back to my earliest forms of like artistic exploration and freedom and using art as a form of liberation, it was really with my grandmother, um, who has since passed away, but in her time, she was a phenomenal singer-songwriter. Uh, she dedicated her life to um, to the church and to, uh, to to worshiping the Lord, right? To worshiping God. Um, I definitely don't ascribe to the same religious practices that she did. She grew up uh, in the South and started many churches um, and, and was a religious leader in many ways. Uh, but I knew her as, as grandmommy, right? She was my grandmother. And to lots of other people, she was either the songbird of the Northeast when she moved to New York City and raised, raised my uh, my father and my, my aunts and uncles, um, or Dar- Darcy May, a beautiful songstress, or all of these different things. But I remember sitting at home with her on many, many occasions. Um, and as she got older, she had what's called Parkinson's. Um, and that affects, uh, mobility amongst other things. And so her hands would shake and she wasn't able to steady her hand to hold a pencil at times. And so I remember she would call me into the living room and she'd hand me a pencil or a pen. And I was, you know, maybe 10, 10 years old. And she would tell me to write down songs that she was singing and she would, um, she would dictate these beautiful lyrics. And I got to be one of the vessels to carry forth, uh, you know her music, and so I think about that whenever I'm sitting down to write my own songs, the ways in which she brought so much creativity and passion to our artistry and that's really all it takes to be an artist in my opinion um, but that's not wisdom that I've made up. it's totally borrowed wisdom from my amazing grandmother, whom I love very much
0: that is beautiful um I love that story, and I think that's very important to call on family um when it comes to to guiding where we're going in the future um you're an inspiration i'm going to say that so uh, ukulele and piano a uh, multi instrumentalist i what what led you to those is there yeah. a story there
1: yeah um so when i was younger hmm i must have been about let's say 11 or 12, um, all of my siblings are very close in age. So I, I mentioned earlier that there are five of us total. We span about nine or 10 years. And so my parents um, kind of like did all of their having children stuff at the same time. And then we sort of did a lot of things together. And so my older sister, who's two years older than me, and my older brother, who's four years older than me, um, the three of us started going to organ lessons when I was around 11 or 12 years old. Um, And the first year, I loved it. I was like, there's an instrument that I could use my hands to make these beautiful sounds. Um, Learning how to read sheet music wasn't my forte and I was never very good at it, but I could learn some pieces by ear and whenever I could master it, I got really excited. Um, The following year, I think it started with my sister saying she didn't like it and so she stopped going. The year after that, my brother stopped enjoying it. And so he stopped going. And, and by that third year, my parents were like, if we only have one kid in the organ lessons, maybe we shouldn't do it. But I was sad and I was like, oh no, I was really loving this. I was getting better. So I transitioned over to a probably used from Best Buy keyboard that we uh that we bought and we put up in in probably the front porch of my family's home. And I just kept playing on the keyboard. Uh got pretty good and and learned my way around sheet music you know something that I was terrified of just years prior um and since then I've just always loved how I can you know make any of these beautiful sounds with with a piano so I've I've shifted I've pivoted from from organ lessons to now kind of freestyling my own sort of things on a piano but um definitely rooted in that in that organ um I think with the ukulele, I was just, I was getting bored in college. And I was like, I need something to do. Guitars are too big and they seem difficult to learn. So I bought a ukulele. Um, My ukulele, uh, so I've told a lot of people this. And sometimes I get like weird looks, but I I name all of my instruments. My ukulele's name is Keith. She uses she, her, hers pronouns. Um, And Keith and I have traveled to dozens of, of different countries around the world. I love to travel and I brought my ukulele with me uh, to just about all the countries I've been to. Um, so my ukulele is more than just an instrument to me. It's a way to meditate and relax. It's a fidget tool when I just wanna like move my fingers and and, and use my mind. Um, and it's also a way to, to bring awesome, at least I think, awesome music into this world that I've written and composed myself. <laughs>
0: I love it. the ukulele is your vessel and your traveling companion.
1: Truly, truly.
0: (laughs) Um, I I did not know that you were so traveled and now I have a whole new set of questions, obviously. (laughs) So please tell me about your favorite place you visited.
1: Wow, favorite place. Um, Hmm. Lots of places are coming to mind immediately. And that makes me really happy. It's, it's bringing a smile to my face. Like so I thinking back to so many cities and people I've met in various countries and recalling all of those great experiences. Top um, two. Top, top two. What? That you thank you. It makes it so much easier. Okay. So top two definitely has to be, I took a, a trip to uh, Panama when I was in high school. It was a, a mission, a mission service learning trip. Um, we spent some time in Carti, in Las Samblas Islas, and we uh, got to work with students who didn't have a lot of resources, um, didn't have a lot of, of, of things. They did their learning under a tent. They didn't have computers and tablets. They didn't have even four walls and a roof. So when it rained, they didn't have school. Um, their teacher wasn't a full-time teacher, but was pretty good at reading and writing and basic math. and so in her free time, she taught them different lessons. Um, I learned so much about my love for the Spanish language, my love for music, and my love for education, all in Panama. Um, and so that has to be one of my my favorite places that I've visited. And of course, Keith was right there with me. Um, I also, so I was a Spanish major. So I studied Spanish, which honestly, it wasn't what I was looking for, but we could talk about that more later. <laughs> um, But in the conclusion of my Spanish major, I was able to travel abroad to Spain. Um, And so I spent some time in Madrid and I spent some time in Barcelona. Um, And I absolutely just loved, loved, loved the, just the style and the feel, everything was so like old and antiquated, but like not in that forced sort of gaudy way that New York tries to do it. It was like, oh, this is like, this is ancient, and that's like awesome. And these buildings and these statues have been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and like that's really awesome to me. So I have to say that that some city in Spain is also my top two.
0: Just Spain,
1: period. Spain, period. Wait, okay. now I'm thinking about, I can't forget about. The Dominican Republic oh you can't you Tough may three. not <laughs> there it is so I also spent time in Dominican Republic and then um, that was that was such a joy uh, it was another mission trip a service learning trip if you will and and I I only spent hmm maybe around three weeks three weeks there um, but I met some really awesome people and I met some people who I still can't stay in contact with um and the dominican republic is somewhere where I, where i need to go back to um at some point in my life and i'm sure i'll, I'll find time post global pandemic post public health crises around the world um but it's a future that's hopefully not too far off
0: i hear nothing but great things about the dominican republic um but you mentioned also all of those places you just mentioned are spanish-speaking countries you mentioned an interesting journey that you had with the spanish language please take us on that journey
1: yeah so i first studied um spanish probably in my like last year of high school and i was like oh this is awesome i love this i want to do this more i want to learn more about uh the spanish language and how to use it there were just so many words that you know, Spanish teachers would always say, this doesn't have a direct translation, it kind of means this, or um, the Spanish language has so many more words for love, and so I can't really translate this love poem into English, because we just don't have enough words, Um, and I was like, wait, wait, wait. no, I want to know, like, what does it mean, Um, and I always got told the same thing, that if you really want to understand, you know, Spanish literature, or you really want to understand Spanish culture, um, then you'll have to learn the language, you'll have to, you'll have to, uh, be able to think in Spanish, so you can feel in Spanish. And I was like, "Sign me up! That's what I need to do. Perfect." Um, but once I got to college, I, I was kind of hoping that um, that my Spanish curriculum would allow me to to learn more about you know Latinx culture and and different countries, specifically in South America. Um, but it was more of like imagine your standard like English class where you read old books written by old white guys who are dead. And you talk about meaning that like probably isn't real, but the teacher says, well, the umbrella was blue and that means that the internal sadness of the main protagonist, you know, all of that stuff. That's what it was. But as a Spanish student, right? So we were talking about old white guys who were dead and we were, you know, dissecting literature that, you know, I didn't really care about or feel passionate about. Um, And what really sucked was that fluency wasn't even part of the um, sort of like goals for the curriculum, right? So you could graduate as a, as a holder of a bachelor's of arts in Spanish and not speak Spanish, which I always thought was like, this feels like a waste of time. I was hoping that I would have like a, um, so my communication studies program Uh, we did a lot of talking about how people interact with one another and how uh, companies interact with each other and how uh, you write a poem and how you understand that poem and how you use that poem to leverage either like political change or political activism. So I love my communication program and I wish that my Spanish program was that in Spanish versus an English class, literature, books, authors in Spanish. But that's sort of like, it, it was a vehicle for me to pretend like I needed to learn Spanish. And now I get to use my degree as like a, well, look, I've studied it. And so you can trust that I, that I know Spanish. And I, I end up writing about it in resumes and cover letters and, and putting on applications more than I, um, more than I thought I would. And so that's cool. What really matters to me is that now that I have practiced Spanish, I can Um, engage with some of my friends in deeper and more authentic ways, especially some of my friends who are from DR, who are from El Salvador uh, or from other Spanish-speaking countries who, you know, have this really gorgeous language. English, once you learn other languages, English is like absolutely gross, (laughs) in my opinion. It's just like this hurts to to make these sounds with my throat and my mouth. I wish I can just speak in Spanish all the time.
0: most surreal travel experience?
1: Hmm. Most surreal travel experience. Hmm. I don't know. I'm not sure. Maybe Maybe my time in, in Panama. You know, I, maybe that's why I was part of my top two, right? Because... When I went to Panama, I had just become an uncle. Um, so I'm the youngest of my siblings. I never got to watch younger kids grow up around me. Um, but one of my brothers uh, and his wife had a child just, just before I left for Panama. And so I was getting really close with my nephew, James, um, and watching as he was like growing and learning and developing. Um, and then I went to Panama, and I got to meet some of these some of these other children, right, across the world, um, who have a very different life from my life. But I was engaging with them in some of the same ways I was engaging with my nephew. And so it was really awesome and probably a little bit surreal to see, you know, in a completely different culture, in a completely different city and country, um, not in New York City, not in America, I was able to, you know, still play little games with, with the kids that I was, you know, hanging out with and, and the kids who I was focusing on for the mission trip. Um, and I said to one of, uh, one of the kids who I really enjoyed spending time with and who took a liking to me, um, I said that I would definitely return and that I would come back. Um, and he asked me many, many times, why is it important to learn or to read or to write or to do math? Um, and I said, because it opens your mind in really cool ways and allows you to think about the world in different ways. And that's advice that I still give to my nephews. Um, And so I think that that was really surreal to find kids who reminded me of my family, uh, somewhere that was completely different from where I grew up. I used to love, love, love reading. Um, There was always those elementary school, like logs that you would have. Um, And it was like, during this year, log all the books you read, at the end of the year, whoever's read the most books in this grade will get like some gift or money or, or treat or something. Um, and I always would compete in those. And I would, um, and I would be the student who was very, I had a lot of integrity. I was very meticulous. I wouldn't write down a book unless I'd read it. Um, and I knew a lot of my friends who would just scribble down names and authors and, and, and try to get to the top of the list. But I, I love to, to, to read and to be a part of those experiences. Um, that kind of shifted at some point, probably around high school or college when book lists got longer at the start of each semester and and none of the books seemed interesting and they were textbooks or they were these really thick books that like super dense and no pictures. I guess whenever pictures stopped being in books, I got really intimidated um, <laughs> whenever, that, whenever that happened. Um, but my journey with reading and my love for reading has over the years completely dissipated. I've completely lost my love for reading. Um, I was thinking about that probably a year or two ago and I didn't like that. I I was very disappointed in myself. I was like, this is something that you love to do. You would spend an entire weekend just reading books. Um, It'd be sunny out. It'd be raining out. It wouldn't matter. If you had a book you had to read, you'd read it. And so over the last couple of years, I've tried to, Um, still do the reading I have to do for school, right? I'm still a student, um, but sprinkle in some leisure reading that I'm excited about, that interests me, um, that helps me to build upon my creativity, my artistry. Uh, And so I found a few books that I enjoy that I oftentimes come back to. Um, I've also been given recommendations from colleagues, from other, other students in my program of just ways to detach from the monotony and scholarship of academic reading, which can get so, so boring and so dense, uh, especially when you're in semester, right? So relationship has been dynamic, we'll say, but hopefully after I graduate this May, I'll be able to put down academic reading for two, three, five years, as long as I need to heal from the trauma of having to read thousands of pages by a certain deadline or, or having to read by... Authors who were like low-key racist or homophobic, um, these book lists, honestly, they need to be revamped because we should not be reading the same the same dead white guys from centuries ago anymore. There are so many beautiful storytellers who also happen to be black, who also happen to be women, who happen to be femmes, trans. We need to start uplifting that, that as an educational um opportunity for students but that's a whole other story and uh more expansive just my own relationship with with reading and learning but
0: yeah do you have a couple of titles you would recommend
1: yeah so right now I am rereading a book that I I love to read I'm in a moment of reflection uh for myself I'm doing a lot of reflecting on who I am as an academic as a scholar who I am who I am as a professional I am as a person a brother a nephew a black man um, and one of my favorite books to read as I'm as I'm doing some intentional reflection uh, is a book called "I Remember." It's by Joe Brainerd. Um, it is, I guess you call poetic prose. Uh, it's a book, it's bound, there's pages and all those things. But each line of the book starts with the phrase "I remember." Um, and this author recounts these amazing stories. Some are kind of random and short. Some are more long winded, but each line starts with the phrase I remember. Um, and that's just a really awesome, I think, way to restrict yourself in your writing. And it opens up a lot of these awesome stories that couldn't have been told in other ways. Right now I'm, I'm authoring my own version of Joe Brainerd's I Remember. Uh, I'm writing a, a short poetic prose that'll be published in the Vermont Connection, TBC, which is a, uh, a journal that gets released each year by a group of uh, colleagues in my academic program, um, but it's called, I Remember Being Black. And each line, similar to Joe Brainerd's book, starts with, I remember being black. Um, it'll be really awesome. So in a couple of months, once it's published, you should definitely check it out,
0: Reggie. <laughs> Absolutely, we'll put the link up. Thank you for sharing that. That's good to know. Um, and congratulations as well on being published. Yeah. Um, so along those lines, I know that you are an avid journaler. Can you speak to uh, your journaling process and what it means to you?
1: Yeah. We're, we're As you ask these different questions, I'm realizing who my mentors have been, right? And I'm realizing who the most important people in my life have been. Because they just keep coming up as main characters in this interview, right? So my grandmother again, um, phenomenal woman did a lot of writing, uh, a lot of writing of lyrics, but also just writing of ideas. She would always write grocery lists or um, you know just other other lists of things. Sometimes she would practice her memory by writing down all of her grandchildren's names and their birthdays. She used to do a lot of writing. Um, She used to do a lot of journaling, a lot of reflecting. Uh, And I think that I've adopted a lot of the practices that she had around journaling. Um, I used journaling at first when I uh, was going to different counseling appointments for my mental health and it was offered to me as a practice of like, oh, write some things down that might help you to organize your thoughts and externalize some of your worries. it's grown beyond that now. I use journaling as a way to just further open my mind. Right, that same advice that I give to my nephews and to the boy in Panama. But um, opening my mind is such a a spiritual activity for me, and I use journaling as a way to to do that. Um, sometimes I'll start with prompts at the top of the page. I might write down what are you gra- uh, what are you holding gratitude for today, um, or what have you done for yourself this week, or when you come from a place of power and, and love and liberation, how do you feel? That is a borrowed prompt from one of your previous uh, interviewees, Katerina Campbell. Um, they have shared so much wisdom with me around reflection and opening up your mind to spiritual activities and experiences. And so wherever I am, I try to grab different prompts that I can later use for my journaling. Um, and it helps me feel grounded. It helps me to remember that I'm more than a student, I'm more than an employee, I'm more than all of these things and the sum of them together. I'm me. And journaling helps
0: me to learn more about who, who me is. I know you shared with me that um, recently you've been sharing more of yourself with your family when it comes to um, your sexual identity. And I was just wondering if you would like to share some of that with us and what that uh, has been like for you.
1: Yeah, of course. So this is all very new, right? This is all very fresh for me. Um, I'm still a young queer boy, right? I'm still very much learning about what my queerness means and how it plays with some of my other identities, my blackness with being well-educated, with being from New York city. How does my queerness play with, a family lineage of uh, religious leaders and folks who are deeply committed to Christianity. Um, And so all of this I'm still learning and of course takes shape in the ways that I reflect and journal, right? So I I use my journaling as, as a way to help myself digest some of this stuff. But I firmly believe, and I have always believed that every single coming out should be a celebration. It should be a party. It should be fun. It should be exciting. It might involve some tears, um, but it should be positive, right? Coming out to someone, coming out to yourself uh, is in some ways still an act of rebellion. Um, and it's, it's a highly vulnerable position to put oneself in. Um, and for that reason, it should be held sacred. It, it is truly a, a, a sacred thing to do. Um, I'm bisexual. I've learned more about what bisexuality means for me. And today, and it might change, but today I identify as bisexual in a way that means that I can love romantically, sexually, intimately, uh, people who identify with my gender and people who identify with other genders. Um, Kinda sounds like a couple of other things in the LGBTQIA alphabet soup. But for me, I'm calling it bisexuality, and that's who I am. Um, It's taken me so much time to get here though, right? Like for a lot of queer folks, it takes a lot of time Um, because we were born into this world with this assumed heterosexuality. We're born into this world, and we're we're told that this is what it means to be a person who likes people with the opposite, quote, unquote, opposite, whatever that means, gender. The first time I came out, I came out to myself and it was in uh, the second floor bathroom of my family's home. My sister was in her room right at the end of the hallway. And I remember hearing her singing along to some song um, as I looked at myself in a mirror and I said for the first time, you're gay. And then I said, I'm gay. Then I started crying, and I was like a complete mess. My sister knocked on the door because she was getting ready for something, um, and I was like, "I'll be out in a minute." Uh, but that was the first time that I came out, and I think that coming out to yourself should be marked as a as a time of coming out. Um, I then came out to my grandmother, uh, another you know main character of this of this interview of my story of my narrative, um, which was kind of like a safety sort of thing. I was. My grandmother had progressed through Parkinson's in such a way where her memory was starting to be affected pretty heavily. Um, Sometimes she would forget my name or where she was or what year it was. And so I felt pretty safe knowing that I could come out to my grandmother and she would forget in like a day or two. And so I I told her one day, I said, Grandmommy, I'm bisexual. And she asked me what that means. And I tried my best to explain in a way that she would understand. And then she closed her eyes and she didn't really say too much to me. That's what she always would do. She would just close her eyes and she would think about something sometimes for an hour or two before talking again. But I just sat with her and then she opened her eyes and she said, are you sure? And I said, yes, I'm sure. She said, do you love yourself? And I said, I do. She said, then I love you too. She closed her eyes, and the next time she woke up from uh, another one of her little naps, um, I don't know if she remembered or didn't remember our conversation, but she acted like nothing had changed. I thought that was so phenomenal. Um, I came out to my sister and my parents next, right before I started undergrad. Um, and I did that strategically. I was like, let me tell them, and then run, so they can't hate me. Um, and For better or for worse, um, at least I felt like I was hated in my family. Uh, I didn't ask, do you hate me? Do you care? I just assumed there's no way that I can both be a queer person and be loved by my black family. It just felt like two two existences that, that uh, couldn't happen at the same time. Um, and so I harbored a lot of feelings of, of isolation and being being hated. Um but most recently, about three weeks ago, I came out to my entire family in a text message <laughs> to our family group chat, um, which has all of my older siblings, my parents, my brother-in-law, my sister-in-law, and I told them for the first time. And I was warmly received. And that makes me feel so happy. Uh, But of course my journey of coming out is not over and I don't think it'll be over soon. Uh, I think that every time I start a new job or meet a new friend or bring someone else home for a holiday or for a cookout or reunion, it'll be a new coming out. And so hopefully each of these times it gets a little bit easier, but we'll see.
0: I think, yeah, in the, in the broad sense of self-acceptance, right? That is a lifelong journey, right?
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Um, well, (laughs) thank you so much for, for, uh, bearing yourself so much. Uh, thank you very much for being so truthful, um, with us today. Um, (laughs) Almost. <laughs> I do and I don't want to get into bi erasure. Do you want is that too heavy right now or ooh, interesting. It's it's heavy. <laughs> I, I know, I know. I mean it's it's up to you if you want if you feel like getting into that or not, as a sort of piece to um being bisexual, i I know that bi erasure is just a fact of life you know that folks go through so if you wanted to touch on that that we can if not i have another question
1: yeah i mean i guess just briefly um thanks for bringing it up too i i I believe that the listeners of brown and out are informed but i I just want to quickly give sort of my own understanding of bi erasure and how that shows up in multiple communities, right? So it's it's more than just um, the erasure of bisexuality within the queer community, right? Where if I, as a male cis man, start dating another man, um, people see my relationship as gay. It's a queer relationship still, but it's not a gay relationship because I'm bi, right? And that opens up this whole can of like uh, conversations that need to be had and... Things that need to be said uh, just the same way that if I start dating a woman, I'm not automatically straight. And so sometimes in an act of rebellion, I'm kind of like, you know, there's no way I could marry a woman because my parents at the wedding would just be like, see, I told him he's straight. Yeah, I always knew it. And I'm like, oh man, I can't do that. I'd be throwing in the towel. So, by erasure happens in the queer community, it happens outside of the queer community. Um, And it's a challenge, right? Because you you you've learned I I have learned as a bi person what my bisexuality means and I'll continue to learn what it means um but having to explain that to other people is always challenging because it it means something different to everybody and for some people it means gay or it means straight but like weird quote unquote um right and so I, I don't know a bi erasure happens For a lot of folks and we speaking collectively often i feel get pushed to the side or out of conversations uh because of the various ways in which bi people might present um or perform in their sexuality or gender identities as well
0: thank you for speaking on that i appreciate that a lot um so we we spoke about uh in our, again, the pre-interview interview, interview, um, about your plans post-graduate school and how they might involve um, moving out west or a different geographical region than the Northeast. And I am just wondering, so given a bit about what you've said in this interview about um, feeling a sort of push to assimilate um, to white culture while living in Vermont. Is um, is that a factor in where you'd like to live post graduate school?
1: Yeah, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. I mean, here's the thing, right? The staggering statistics, uh, which I think a lot of BIPOC, black indigenous people of color in Vermont, um, know to be true, is that we are living in the whitest state in America, right? We are living in a state with 96, 97% of people who identify as white. Um, And that doesn't mean, right, that all of the remaining, for being generous, 5% of people are Black, are Latinx, are Asian. It means that all of the various identities, racial, ethnic identities that could be that could be shared within uh, the broad spectrum of of those things or narrowed down to just 5%, right? So me finding another monoracial black person in Vermont who like maybe also has some other qualities that are in line with mine. Like, right, they play an instrument. They like to sing. Um, It's a really, really small pool. And those are the folks who I connect with the most, right? And so anywhere I go, (laughs) from Burlington, Vermont, will likely be a step in the direction towards racial, ethnic, and cultural diversity that I'm looking for. And yes, it plays a huge, huge part. Um, I have wanted to live in California since I was in like middle school. I was always like, oh, I would love to live out West. My version of California, just like many people's version of a New York City is Manhattan, is Times Square. My version of California is some random beach in LA or like literally sitting on the golden gate bridge. Right. So like, I have a very narrow understanding of what California is, um, but because it's such a different world to me I um, think that's what intrigues me so much. Uh, and so hopefully I'll be moving out West to California, hopefully the Bay area. I'm, I'm doing a lot of job applications right now. So hopefully the next time, I listen to this podcast, I'll be employed somewhere, right? Maybe I'll be able to look back on this and use it as a moment of uh, of reminder. And so uh, could I give a small piece of advice to my future self? You didn't have to worry, Jake. See, you made it. You're exactly where you should be. Um, And all the work you're putting in right now is gonna pay off. It's another part of my manifesting and journaling that I like to do. Um, I'm speaking into existence, future Jake, is comfortable where he is um and hopefully like has a couple of like black people and POC people who he spends time with because you know white people get exhausting sometimes so future jake i hope you're you found your community (laughs) uh
0: bless you future jake and Hmm. i would like an invitation to stay with you in the bay area if you're going there Um, please uh, come by (laughs) It's a really, really cool place, and I wish you uh, the best of luck out there. What does Black queer culture in Vermont look like to you?
1: Um, so I, I knew this coming to Vermont, um, but my life is in, in many ways consumed by my relationship with the university. I'm a graduate student at the University of Vermont. I work at the University of Vermont. Many of my friends, many of my Vermont chosen family have also deep relationships with the university. Um, And so my understanding of even Vermont or Burlington is really centered around the institution, um, which in some ways I've tried to to separate from the institution. Finding part-time employment um, outside of the campus, not living on campus as like a, a residence director. All of those things kind of work towards helping me to develop my own identity outside of just the school. But of course it, it's happened. And so uh, my perception of Black queerness in Vermont is my perception of Black queerness at the institution. Um, and in that, I found some folks who I can really lean on and really trust. I have some mentors, friends, family who I really love, and also happen to be queer folks, also happen to be people of color. Um, and it's a unique community, right? When, when you know that everyone in your community, um, or you can assume, has had some level of racial trauma, has had some level of trauma related to their sexual identity, gender expression, gender identity. Um, it kind of sucks that, you know, that like when you find another uh, queer person of color living in Vermont for like more than a year, they've likely had some feelings of isolation. They've likely had some feelings of like doubt. Um, And so my relationship with with the community that I've been able to manifest uh, has been one of collective healing, community care, checking in on each other, and also creating plans together for how we're going to uh, move somewhere more affirming in the future. Uh, I'm really proud of some of my friends uh, who have recently taken on new jobs, uh, are moving across the country. Isora um, Elifko, one of my great, great friends, uh, has just taken on new employment. Um, Benedicto Llave, Eric Hernaje, all folks who are moving out of this space um, and are showing me that it's possible to to dream bigger, to think bigger than where we are today. And that's for everyone, right? It's not like it's not like Vermont is the worst place in the world. It's not like the university is the, the worst campus in the world. That's not that's not true. Um, but when you are suffering, when you're hurt, and when you're hurting, um, it's a bold choice to do something that's going to restore your energy and restore your wellness. Um, and seeing folks who I've mentioned, other folks take control of their life. And do things that are going to help them in the future uh, is just such a huge inspiration, and so um, that's also a part of the community, right? It's finding where restoration is, even if that's not here. Um,
0: yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, when do you feel most brown and out?
1: Yeah, I love that question, and. I don't necessarily know that I have an answer. Um, I feel, uh, when do I want to feel most brown and out? With my family. That would feel really affirming. I feel most brown, I feel most black, I feel most uh, comfortable racially when I'm at home with my family. When I'm holding my three young nephews with with different colors of beautiful brown skin, when I am hugging my mom, when she's uh, tightening my dreadlocks, when my dad and my brothers and I go out to the backyard, lift weights, and just talk about life, I feel the most brown, but I don't feel the most out. So it's it's a challenge. I guess I feel the most brown and out when I'm with other people who have that shared struggle that I mentioned before. I feel the most brown and out when I am with people who, our brownness, our blackness, and our outness are not the most important things about us, right? When I am the only black person in a room, I am the only black person in a room. And that's a lot of weight to hold. Um, But when I can be in a community where it's assumed, oh yeah, it's not special that you're black. (laughs) It's not special that you're queer, because we all are. We're all figuring out what this means for us. And we're not the same. We're definitely not the same. But we're not as different as we feel when we're around the masses, um, and those small communities can be so healing, um, and also take a lot of work to find. Sometimes I'm so grateful for uh, the folks who are creating spaces for community in the Burlington and greater, greater Burlington area for queer folks, people of color. Um, I don't know that every city has, you know, those those leaders who are doing that work of of convening the folks who need to be convened. Um, Long-winded response said a lot of words. There's no well-packaged answer in there and I'm okay with that. So
0: (laughs) yeah. I think your wind was the perfect length. Um, It was, (laughs) it was not long. It was not short. It was great.
1: Thank you. I also want to thank, thank the people who have been on this podcast before me. Uh, I mentioned Katarina Campbell, um, but there are just so many uh, amazing, amazing, amazing queer BIPOC folks here and further than just the the walls of the Great Burlington area um, who are living these amazing lives and being radical and being absolutely kick-ass, right? And so I want to thank all of them for doing the things that they've done to allow me to do the things that I'm now doing which will hopefully, fingers crossed, right, allow future people to do the things that they need to do and want to do. Um, I never really thought about how my, my life has an impact on this world before my nephews were born. And I think about, in everything I do, trying to create pathways for them to walk a more confident life. Um, the youngest one is three, the middle one is four, and the oldest is six. And they have no idea what this huge, angry world is like. Um, and so I'm going to do everything I can to make it a little less angry uh, for them, first and foremost. But yeah, I don't think I have anything else to add. I mean, oh, check me out on spot. I told you all that I'm a singer-songwriter. Um, come through every time you stream my music on any platform. I get a little coin. So look me up. It's just Jake Small on Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes, Tidal. I think I'm on a bunch of other things. So check me out. Um, or you can type in the link go.uvm.edu G-O, slash Jake Small on Spotify. Or just Jake Small. And it'll take you to my online portfolio. So don't let this be the last time I see you. If you're listening to this podcast today, follow me on Instagram, um connect with me please because this community uh, is going to need to rely on connecting with each other and building relationships so let's start one